of First Corinthians chapter four. I believe the passage is just six and seven, but we're reading verses one through seven. Our Bible can't help it, but our the preface begins with these words This book is the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And those are the words spoken at every coronation in Britain. And so listen for them soon. And that is how your preface to the Bible starts. And it includes all the words here. Here are these oracles of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. Today we're taking a one-week hiatus from 1 John to look at 1 Corinthians. It was an especially full week. I have made a lot of progress on that first John sermon, but wasn't able to get it completed. So we're reworking a sermon that's always very relevant, an issue of humility. I'm glad Elder Craig read the context, Apostle Paul, the man Apollos, and us. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, thank you that you feed us Jesus in the Word and Sacrament, that You root out all sin in us in time and space and in eternity. There will be no presence of sin, let alone reality or experience of it. We're grateful for that. But here we continue to be conformed into your image. And the only way that can happen is by ingesting the person of Jesus. So feed us him in the word and sacrament, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The root of all sin is pride. And we might recall that Satan fell from heaven, Lucifer did. He fell because he was proud. Adam fell in the garden because he was proud. We know this is the Bible's own teaching from Proverbs 16:18. basically says that the root of all sin is pride. We know from our own personal sad experiences that pride is at the heart and root and base of our sins. We also know from the aforementioned Satan and Adam's examples of it, and I'll reference for you Ezekiel 28:11 through 17 and Genesis 3, 5 through 7. But the perfect model of true humility is, of course, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Redeemer of God's elect church, who came here as a humble man. In the epistle of Philippians, at chapter 2, verse 8, 
we read these remarkable words. And being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. All of the problems in the Corinthian congregation were really resulting from pride, and it grows out of the toxic soil, all sin. The sins that we commit and the sins that all people commit are basically rooted in pride. Pride was behind the party spirits in Corinth that we had studied when we went through this book. You might recall if you were here for that, where some were saying, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, some I'm of Christ. I'm a Peter, and it was at the base of all their sins, and really at the base of ours too. But there is a great antidote to the pride problem, and that is humility. And humility is wrought in the saints through an understanding of what sin is, a hatred for it, a grieving over it, a mourning over it, a despising of it, not so much for what it does to us or others, but how it dishonors our good and holy and perfect God. And I would reference for you Matthew 5, 4. The antidote, true humility planted in love for Christ, which is a result of saving grace and salvation in him. Therefore, let's make it our goal this Lord's Day, this Sabbath day, our gospel aim to be the humble and gracious church of Christ. With this before us, we're studying 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, just the two verses. True humility. The doctrine, true humility always glorifies Christ, not fallen humans. Now, remember, all idolatry usually ends up focusing on some fellow fallen and human sinner. This is the idolatry of a lot of uh, people with regard to politicians or actors, actresses, or somebody else that they set up as some kind of model of supreme goodness or virtue or piety or power. It's just idolatry, and it's just false. And so idolatry often does focus on human beings, but there is one human being that can be looked to perfectly and trusted absolutely. And that one proper and true one is, of course, the God-man, Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord and Savior, the King of the Church and the universe. So true humility always glorifies Christ, not fallen humans, First, failure to do this results in ill-advised judgments. Now, in the previous verses that Elder Craig read for us, Paul had spoken of the redeemed church as the true judgment-free zone. We had an exciting sermon on that a long time ago, that the church is a judgment-free zone, that we don't need to judge. We learned there that everyone actually makes judgments, including us. And, of course, we're created in God's image. We must make judgments. But... That if we are in Christ and faithful in our covenant keeping in our church vows, i.e. we are faithful to Christ in our presence before him, to hear him, to ingest him, to be his bride, his people, his body, his church, as we are here on Sunday, that is an enormously good thing because it's evidence of genuine faith And in that case, no one's judgments of us have any force or legitimacy at all. So the world's hatred and force of, uh, you know, wrath against us and all of its judgments don't mean anything. Don't mean anything to God. Don't need to mean anything to us either. This is very liberating. Also, I might say religious world, which is much worse than the secular world. The religious world that would condemn you true absolutely forgiven saints in the church 
for your faith and they think you need to add something to it. You don't need to listen to that. You don't need to live under that kind of judgment. But today's text will remind us that failure to laser in on Christ always results in not only not good judgments, but inadequate, incomplete, and those that are out of place. So when we aren't focused on Jesus, we still make judgments, but they go awry. So uh, this is uh, something we're going to be looking at. Now, in order for us to make proper judgments, we must possess, know, understand, and participate in the proper criteria for those judgments. And all those criteria center on Christ, his gospel, his church, his covenant-keeping, or lack thereof within. So, in no way, I, I, I'm actually going to say later in this sermon something I'll say now, and that is that we are blessed because we're a united church, and and this is a beautiful thing. And this sermon, of course, there's no secret meanings behind it. It's just being faithful to the word of God as it's given to us. The reality, however, is that even as a united church that is uh, in love with Christ and each other, we must never take that for granted. We can never relax our muscles. We can never let up. We can never stop. We can never take a break or vacation. We must constantly exert ourselves by faith to continue that good spirit. True humility always glorifies Christ, not fallen sinners. Failure to do this results in ill-advised judgments that require a miraculous remedy. It's interesting that Paul will use other fallen human beings to help the Corinthian Christians get out of the morass of sin, trouble, idolatry, and confusion. But even those people, Paul and Apollos, were simply signposts directing everyone in the Corinthian congregation, in the city of Corinth, and in the Roman world, and all the way down to us today, all the people of all the earth at all times, to the one person, Jesus Christ, the only one that can and will save them, help them, give them life, hope, and every good thing. Everything that is good, true, valuable, or worthy is found in Christ Jesus, and anything outside of him is not. And so that's how central he is. Here's an important principle to take to the bank and take note of. None of us or any of the poor, fallen, sinful people in the world that we rub shoulders with every day can get out of the sin web on our own. It's just too much of a tangled mess. Uh, last week, as this illustration just came to me, but Kenny was out there and I were with me helping my family out. And uh, we had this long extension cord. Remember the extension cord? And it was tangled up and tangled up and tangled up. And it took a while to untangle that thing. Uh, the fact is that nobody can get out of the, the sin web on their own. Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the gracious, sovereign God must do it. But he uses us too. And that's one of the great advantages of being in the true, redeemed, faithful church, even though we're still struggling and sinful. We get to be used by God as co-laborers in this great work, as 2 Corinthians 5 mentions. We help not only each other, but everyone else in the world find and love the giver of true and only liberty, and that is the person of Jesus. Now let's look at these two verses, 6 and 7, chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, and wonder at how God uses true humility to reorient our minds of Christ, R-E-O-R-I-E-N-T. 
children, that means to, to reshuffle them or to rework them, to put them into the proper order. Let's recall that Paul had taught us way back in 1 Corinthians 2.16b that we, the by grace faithful members of the true church, now possess the mind of Christ. And it is this mind of Christ that we're talking about here that must be illumined by the Holy Spirit. Because we are given, we live in a dark world, our minds are dark, we always have to have our minds illumined by the Spirit so that we see the path, the way, who is Jesus himself, and know how to walk in and with him the path. So let us now consider how God uses true humility to reorient our minds of Christ. First, through our observing noble and courageous examples, Paul and Apollos, verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, it is interesting that Paul would employ these two human beings, because many of the Corinthian congregants were tripping over each other in their efforts to extol one of them over the other. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And what is it about Paul? What is it about Apollos that made them special? Actually, nothing that you don't already and also possess and have the capability of exuding and exhibiting. At base, Paul and Apollos were nothing more, nothing less than humble and yet exalted servants of the great King, Jesus Christ our Lord. And they worked together. Paul's citation in verse 6 about not going, quote, beyond what is written, unquote, is very helpful. That is an obvious reference to the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. No question about that. It's gospel teaching and instruction. And we might ask, where in the sacred text would the church ever be encouraged or exhorted to be arrogant against one another? And the obvious answer is nowhere. God's not going to teach us that. So he says, don't go beyond what's written. The opposite of being, quote, puffed up, verse 6b, is to be humble. And humble people in God's church look for Christ in each other and help build each other up in our most holy faith. And we don't, as they were, being tempted to look for credentials, human credentials, things like that. So how God uses true humility to reorient our minds of Christ? Well, he's going to do it in the congregation, in the actual human beings, real people that you're sitting next to, that you see, that you love, that you fellowship with, you worship with, you serve together with. Real people like... Examples of Paul and Apollos, who are noble and courageous, and through our giving thoughtful consideration to sovereign grace, verse 7a. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? I think this phrase, verse 7a, has sometimes been taken a little bit out of context to teach the sovereignty of God and election itself. And, of course, we love that doctrine. We love the doctrine of sovereignty of God, and we're not ashamed of it. We're happy to preach it at every point, and we're grateful for it. But I believe that here in verse 7a, the brilliant apostle is referring more to an important aspect of redemption and adoption, and that is, in context, 
the truth that even these somewhat wayward Corinthian Christians were nevertheless also not under judgment either. Even though they were straying, they were still there. All right, They hadn't left the, the church, they hadn't quit coming to church on Sunday, they were still there, they were struggling along, but they were still under this blessed covenantal blessing of not being under judgment. When regenerate people live in harmony, as the Christians in Corinth were to be doing, there is no judgmental evaluation of, even quoting from verse 6b, one against the other, unquote. So there doesn't need to be that. And of course, we don't need that either. But sadly and truthfully, everywhere and every time Jesus Christ is not loved from the heart, the result is always the same. People looking at each other's plates and making unsound, unwise, and unhelpful judgments. See, that's really a problem, isn't it? That's kind of at the root of human uh, struggles. Did God look down upon the city of Corinth in the mid-first century A.D. and say, oh, there's some good people, there's some good souls, I'll pick them, I'll save them. There's a few. Did he do that? Of course not. God doesn't elect on that basis. He didn't do that. They didn't earn it. Quite to the contrary, God extended his mercy to them on his own good pleasure, that base in Christ Jesus alone. And the result in the redeemed people there and us today will be awe, humility, love, and praise for God. This was true of the Corinthian church, and it's also true of us today. How God uses true humility? Well, observing noble and courageous examples, thoughtful consideration to sovereign grace, and finally, through our submitting to corrective theology that recognizes divine prerogative. Prerogative is privilege or authority, children. Verse 7b, where we read, If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? To explain, Paul seems to be saying to the Corinthians that they had so lost their way that now they were actually showing signs of feeling entitled as if they could take God's blessings for granted or even worse, think that they merited or earned them, which is a terrible thing. The apostle would need to do some apostolic spanking, and we read about that in verses 8 through 13, and I think I preached two subsequent sermons on apostolic spanking. But I would say that that spiritual and apostolic corporal punishment really kind of starts here in verse 7b. It seemed that the Corinthian parish had reckoned itself to be practically self-sufficient, and Paul would end chapter 4 with fatherly correction of them. Do you understand that if even for a nanosecond God quit thinking about you or me or anything or any other human being or anything that exists, that thing, that person, that being would simply cease to exist? That is how completely dependent we are upon our Creator. How much more true is it then that what we that we would be utterly lost in sin, let alone time and space, if we were believing something that was not given to us by God? So everything that we believe, we confessed it in our Westminster this morning, is given to us by God. It is our inheritance. It is 
the treasure, the chest of grace and glory that we have. And we are to guard the good deposit entrusted to us and use it well. To put it another way, dears, there is no hope for us or anyone else in the world except in Jesus Christ alone, his blood atonement and glorious resurrection from the dead, received by grace through faith. As always, let's do a little more application this morning and understand why true humility is indispensable, I-N-D-I-S-P-E-N-S-I-B-L-E, in the faithful congregation. We can't do without it. The first big error that was addressed by the Apostle Paul in the Corinthian letter, the first letter, was a party spirit issue, which we've referred to. The next one coming up in chapter 5 is immorality. But it didn't matter really what the sin was that the Apostle had to write about in these this particular epistle, all of them resulted from pride or a lack of Christian humility. But genuine spiritual humility is hard to come by, and it is certainly the fruit of miraculous grace in our Lord Jesus. So let us seek to better comprehend why true humility is indispensable in the faithful congregation. First, because otherwise unity is impossible. That's how important Uh, humility is. And providentially, we talked about humility this morning in the adult Sunday school class up here about the importance of it and how that's wrapped up in repentance and confession. Unity is essential to the church. The Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, are always and forever and always have been and always will be perfectly united in total, complete harmony. And it's necessary, not optional, that the body of Christ on earth be united too. We can and should, and here's my note, thank God that we by his grace are a united church. But again, we must never take this blessing for granted. We must guard and be vigilant with it, especially as we move into future epochs and eras of the church's ministry. Never take it for granted. When Paul left the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He, he said that the fierce wolves would come in just as soon as he left. Satan will take advantage of anything he can against the church, and we just simply have to be careful and wise, but bold and confident, unafraid and unashamed, totally confident in our blessed Savior, full of assurance of his goodness and grace, leaning upon him and trusting him in all his promises given to us. It's a beautiful thing. Did the Corinthian congregation have a lot of gifts? Yes, they did. But were they together like they should have been around Jesus? No. Was their case hopeless? Hardly. The Apostle Paul didn't give up on them. What is a great practical takeaway for us from all of this? It's this, dears. Remember that ours is an alien righteousness. It is our righteousness. It is ours. We possess it, but it's alien It is given to us, imputed to us legally by God to our hearts. It is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. It comes to us entirely from another, the person of Jesus alone. Why true humility is indispensable, and if that's true, then we have no reason to be proud. In the faithful congregation, because otherwise unity is impossible, and God has so ordained it, 
that his son will be exalted by the redeemed church. And therefore, I would argue that constitutional or continual lack of unity in any true church congregation is actually impossible. It's not even feasible. It's not, can't be, can't happen. What we are saying here in closing is that God cannot and will not be frustrated in the inevitable glorification of his exalted and crowned son on earth in his church militant here and now, not only in glory in heaven. And this is great news for us because we get to share in our Messiah's triumph and we're the ones that get to sing his glorious praise as we've been doing here today. Has God withheld from us anything of value that we have not received from him, as per verse 7 of today's text? Answer, no. And how do we know this? Because he has given us Jesus, his prized love, his only son. What is our response to our good and gracious father to be? Faith in his son and love for him and the three persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of this accompanied by willing, gracious, joyful, compliance, obedience to him out of a heart filled with gratitude and praise and thankfulness, pleasing our beloved triune God, who gave us the blood of the covenant, the blood of his son that we're going to be celebrating here at the table and caused our regeneration by his sovereign grace and also our justification through Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead on the third day. He has now risen into heaven. He has got you nestled in his heart. In human nature, you are brought right into the very heart of the Holy Trinity. And that will be celebrated in a special way here. There's, true humility is really a beautiful thing. As God's beloved and cherished church here, let us, by grace, continue to demonstrate in Jesus true humility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that. We need that humility, and it must be true. It must be genuine. It must be real. It must be sincere. It's never going to be perfect here, but we want it to be as good as we can in Jesus Christ alone, who is our only hope. We trust you and your power and your Holy Spirit to bring that about. Thank you, Lord, that you've made us a humble church. May we always remain that way and be a faithful one as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.